Jonah chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thank you very much, Johan. We're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about the passage Johan has read for us from Jonah chapter 3. Again, um, you might find it helpful to have that open in front of you as we think about it over the next few minutes. Um, But let me pray as we turn to, to do that together now. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the words of our God will stand forever. Our God and Father, we thank you for your eternal word and pray now that as we study it together, you would please be at work among us, changing us to be more and more like you and to love you more and more. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Are we too far gone for God? In the 21st century Scotland or the Western world as a whole, are we too far gone for God? And uh, before you answer that question, uh, just track with me the trajectory of the Christian faith in the Western world over recent years. In the the late 19th century, a philosopher called Friedrich Nietzsche famously announced that God is dead. Now, Nietzsche was an atheist, so he didn't actually believe that God existed at all, so he didn't think God could therefore have died. But he thought the role that God had previously played in Western society, well, that was now a thing of the past. That culturally, people had drifted so far from belief in God that he might as well be understood to have died for all the influence he was having. And that was a controversial thing for Nietzsche to say when he wrote it, and possibly a bit premature. Because more people than not in the Western world would have called themselves Christians when he was writing. Scotland, for example, was at that stage still known as being the land of the book. That book being the Bible, given how highly the Bible was revered in the country as a whole. And now we're about 150 or so years on from then. And I wonder if Nietzsche's words would be less controversial now than they were then. 
because the direction of travel in the Western world has been further and further away from belief in the God of the Bible. Depending on the stats you listen to, it's somewhere in the region of 2% of the population of Scotland will be engaging with a church where the good news of Jesus is spoken about this morning. And Scotland is what a number of Christian mission agencies would now class as an unreached people group. And if you're a Christian, I'm guessing that you wouldn't say that God is dead, or at least I'm I'm hoping you wouldn't. But you might at least understand the sentiment. Because things can feel pretty hopeless when it comes to the Christian faith in Scotland. Perhaps in your heart, you've begun to wonder whether we are too far gone as a society for God to really bother with us anymore. Perhaps though you don't spend too much of your time thinking about things at at that sort of societal level or for Scotland as a whole. But maybe instead, as you think on individual friends and family members, well, maybe it seems as though they're just so opposed to the Christian message perhaps just so apathetic to the Christian message that you feel as though they might well be too far gone for God, just too tough a nut to crack. Let's get more personal still. Perhaps as you take stock in your own life, you wonder whether you might be too far gone for God, that your life's a litany of mistakes and regret, and that there's just no way God could make good with you now. At a cultural level, at the level of friends and family, at the level of our own lives, we might not say that God is dead, but the evidence might sometimes make us wonder whether we aren't just beyond his reach. And uh, to that mindset, to the idea that a culture or that an individual is too far gone for God, well, Jonah chapter 3 is going to say a thundering no We're in week three in our studies in the book of Jonah this morning. It's taken two whole chapters for us to finally reach the people to whom Jonah was originally sent to preach. God sent him, chapter one, to the people of Nineveh. And uh, the book doesn't tell us a huge amount about the people of Nineveh. But what the text does tell us, and tells us several times in fact, is that the people of Nineveh were an unsavory bunch. That's what triggers God sending Jonah to speak to them in the first place, in fact. Chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, God said to Jonah. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. It's their evil that prompts God's call to Jonah. And it wasn't just God who thought they were a bad bunch. They even knew it themselves. In our passage this morning, the king of Nineveh says about himself and the rest of the Ninevite population, chapter 3, verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Or chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. So we aren't told a huge amount about the people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, but we are told this, they are an evil lot. And that much is verified by the rest of the Bible. Another prophet called Nahum, when speaking about the city of Nineveh, describes it as being a city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, 
never without victims. Nineveh was known as being a city of violence, known for its brutal treatment of all the people they conquered. And we know from historical sources too more widely, if you ever visit the British Museum in London, there's a selection of artifacts from ancient Assyria, that's the country in which Nineveh was situated. And from those artifacts, we can tell that they were a powerful people. They were politically astute. They were advanced as a civilization. But above all of that, it's clear they were really, really violent. They were a brutal people, even by ancient standards. Or in the words of the book of Jonah, they were evil. And so uh, religiously and, and, and morally, they couldn't have been much further away from the God of the Bible. And yet, the punchline of this morning's passage is that they come to saving faith in that same God. Now that should come as a real shock. It might not because some of us might be familiar with the story of Jonah. It should come as a real shock, not least because it certainly would have done to Jonah's first readers. And that shock should do two things for us, two big takeaways for us this morning. Firstly, It should give us confidence in God, in his power to rescue even the most unlikely of people who seem well beyond his reach. We can be confident that even though things might seem as though they're on a downward trajectory, but when it comes to the Christian faith, God is most definitely not dead. And as well as giving us confidence in God, secondly, it should motivate us to speak out, to tell other people God's message, no matter how far they might seem to be from him. That's where we're heading this morning, and we're going to look at Jonah 3 a bit more closely. Uh, Firstly, next slide, please, Michael. Thank you. God's message is a message of judgment, verses 1 to 4. And now, if you've been here over the past couple of weeks, the opening verses of chapter 3 might have given you a bit of deja vu as Johan read them for us, just as he had done at the beginning of chapter 1. God again sends Jonah with a message for the people of Nineveh, chapter 3, verse 1. So it seems as though we're back to square one. The difference this time, though, is that Jonah does what God asks. And so we find out what that message is at chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city of Nineveh, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, Jonah isn't likely to win any awards for his speech writing, but his meaning is pretty clear. In 40 days' time, Nineveh faces catastrophe. See, the word overthrown might sound to us like he's anticipating some sort of you know, orderly political coup. But the sense is much, much stronger than that. It's the same word used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the destruction of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. The message that God gave Jonah to preach to Nineveh, well, it's a message of judgment. And from what I've told you about them so far, that might not come as much of a surprise. It might actually sound fairly reasonable. They were a particularly nasty group of people, so it's, well, it's a good thing they're going to get what's coming to them, isn't it? What does that have to do with us, though? We don't live in Nineveh, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't tend to spend our spare time dreaming up new and horrible ways of torturing our enemies as the Ninevites did. What does any of that have to do with us? 
Hey, well, let me just read to you a verse or two from Matthew's account of Jesus' life. This is from Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and someone, sorry, something greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus is saying is is pretty extraordinary. He's saying we aren't just in a similar situation to, to Nineveh, deserving God's judgment. Jesus says we're in an even worse position than they are. Why? Well, because we haven't just had a a half-hearted and and slightly fishy-smelling prophet telling us about God's judgment like Nineveh did. We've had God himself in the flesh. Jesus Christ coming to announce that God would judge people. And I'm not flying a kite there. That message is consistent with the message of the whole Bible. All of humanity, every single one of us, faces God's judgment, not because we're as barbaric as the Ninevites and how we treat our neighbors necessarily, I hope we aren't, but because we are implacably opposed to our maker, have rejected God and his messengers, have disobeyed him. Different pictures are used through the Bible to explain and to help us feel what that rejection is really like. It's like a citizen rejecting the authority of their king. It's like a child being disobedient to a loving parent and walking away. It's like a spouse spurning their spouse and being unfaithful. It is a serious, serious thing. And one day, the Bible tells us that justice will be done. God promises that he will judge everyone who has rejected him, and that means every single one of us. And so the message of God's judgment isn't just a message for Jonah's day. It isn't just a message for the people of Nineveh. It's a message for us too. And I wonder how that idea strikes you this morning. How do you respond to the idea that God's message is a message of judgment? And perhaps your response is to dismiss it. Uh, that's a, a fairly common response in our culture, I think, to write it off as, as an old-fashioned idea. It's the preserve of fire and brimstone preachers in years gone by. God, if there really is a God, is a lot warmer and a lot fuzzier than that. He's, he's gracious and he's kind and he's loving. He would never judge anyone, not least someone like me. But no, Jonah's clear. And Jesus is crystal clear. His message is a message of judgment, and we do each have to reckon with that. Perhaps, though, your response to that message isn't one of of dismissal. It is one of dismay. Hearing that God is a God of judgment might bring a, a sort of clenching feeling in the pit of your gut, either as you think on the future that awaits our culture, or as you think on friends and family, who've rejected God, perhaps even as you mentally revisit the things you've done in your own life that would warrant the judgment of a good and a right God. Well, Jonah's message and Jesus' message to that point isn't just a message of judgment, is it? And that's a really key part of it, one that we'd often try and uh, sideline if we could, but it isn't all of the message. Jonah's message is a message of delayed judgment. Yet 40 days, says Jonah, And Nineveh will be overturned. Not today, but in 40 days' time. 
And that might sound like I'm, I'm splitting hairs, but I really don't think I am. In fact, that God's message is a message of delayed judgment means that it's actually a message of real kindness. And we see that under our next heading this morning. God's message of delayed judgment is kind, allowing time to respond, verses 5 to 9. Jonah delivers his message, verse 4, and the response he receives is remarkable. Or perhaps more accurately, the response that God receives is remarkable. I wonder if you notice that. Just look again at verse 5, if you have a Bible open in front of you. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Rather than stringing Jonah up, as they tended to do to their enemies, they hear Jonah's words as being God's words. And they respond by fasting and putting on sackcloth. If you don't know what sackcloth is, it's a a sort of coarse fabric, usually made out of something like goat hair. And that might sound like a a fairly strange thing to do, uh, to hear that God's about to judge you, and so you go and get changed into something a bit less comfortable. But actually, what the people of Nineveh are wearing on the outside, well, it tells us a lot about what's going on on the inside. Because fasting and and, and sackcloth, they weren't uh, lifestyle choices, though some of us might adopt fasting from time to time as a lifestyle choice. Sackcloth wasn't a fashion choice. They were signs in the ancient world of humility and of contrition and of remorse. That's how the people responded to the message of impending judgment. The message spreads throughout the city and makes its way to the king, verse 6. And remarkably, the king's response to Jonah's message goes even further still than the people. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. It's a bit like an abdication, isn't it? He steps down from his throne, his position of authority. And in exchange for the royal clothes he'd been wearing before, he puts on the same as the rest of Nineveh, sackcloth. And what's being enacted there in that wardrobe change is what other Bible authors call repentance. Now, I'm conscious that that word repentance might sound a bit archaic or or old-fashioned to some of us, but it is an important word, and it conveys an important idea. It means to turn away from something in contrition and remorse and to turn towards something else. And if the king's wardrobe change isn't enough to tell us that he's repenting, well, his words definitely should be. Notice what he orders the people to do. He says they're to turn away from violence and evil and to call out mightily to God. Turning from and turning to He orders a city-wide repentance. And just notice, that isn't a performative thing. It isn't for show. He isn't doing it to try and impress God's prophet in case that buys him some spiritual brownie points. Verse 9, who knows, he says. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. No sense of entitlement or of presumption. He knows he's done wrong. He repents of it. And he cries out to God in the hope that he might be shown mercy. 
Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that the message of God's judgment is kind, and it's possible you're still wondering why. Because things still seem pretty bleak in Nineveh so far. It's a message of judgment, a people in mourning. Where is the kindness in any of that? Well, the kindness is in the delay. We have two little boys whom you saw rumbling around up here just a few minutes ago, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And in our garden at the back of our house, there's a set of pretty steep stone steps down onto a grassy patch below. And unfortunately for our boys, all they really seemed to inherit from me was heavy heads and bad balance. And we all have a knack for falling over and landing on our heads and causing ourselves some damage. And so when our boys are playing at the paved bit at the top of those steps, what you'll hear from our house repeatedly is me shouting out, boys, be careful. Be careful. Watch the steps. Because if they fall down those steps, they're really going to hurt themselves. And in one sense, that act of warning is a bit of a spoil sport move. It ruins their fun. It stops them from playing quite as freely as they might otherwise play. But in another sense, a more important sense, it's an act of love. Warning them about the kind of danger they're in is the kind thing to do in that situation. It is the loving thing to do in that situation. And we might say the same thing about God sending this message of warning to Nineveh. Because you see, God is right to be angry. We've seen something of how nasty the people of Nineveh were. He would be within his rights to smite them there and then. No message in advance. Just to snuff them out. And so the delay, the announcement to warn them about that, Well, it is a kindness. And so too for us. It is an act of kindness and of mercy for God to halt us in our tracks. Listen, we might not like being told that judgment is coming. In our culture, it's often thought of as being an unkind or an unloving message to say that God will judge people. But you see, it's precisely the opposite. It's to tell us that we're in real danger here and to give us time, time to turn away from our rebellion against him and to call out to him for mercy. And that really is a kindness because when we do repent, when we turn away from our rebellion, no matter how great that rebellion has been, his mercy is more. Let's think about that under our last point this morning. The word of God's impending judgment is good news because his mercy is more. Verse 10, the people of Nineveh repent, they cry out for mercy, and so God responds. Chapter 3, verse 10, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. Now, some commentators have taken this verse to mean that God uh, is a bit flaky. He changes his mind, that he, he promises to destroy them, But then he becomes a bit conflicted over time about quite whether that's the right thing to do or not. He ends up sort of backing out of it at the last minute. But that isn't the sense of what happens at all. Think back to my example of of my boys playing near the top of a set of stone steps. Imagine me saying to them, careful boys, you're going to fall down those stairs and hurt yourselves. Now imagine for a moment that in playing, they don't fall down the stairs. Does that mean that I've changed my mind? Of course it doesn't. The fact that they didn't fall down the stairs is a sign that my warning has done its job. It's alerted them to the danger. They're the ones who changed tack. 
And the same thing is true of this spiritual warning. We've already thought on the fact that we are all in trouble when it comes to how we've treated God. Serious, serious trouble, in fact. But you see, the wonderful good news of Jesus is that when we do as the people of Nineveh did, when we repent, we turn from our rebellion against him and we cast ourselves at his feet, he is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. The Bible tells us that for anyone who trusts in Jesus, the judgment that should fall on us for that rebellion instead fell on him at the cross. And I do wonder if some of us might need convincing of that this morning. I mentioned a few minutes ago that some of us, when we hear the message of God's judgment, might, might sort of dismay over that message. And might do that because of that trajectory of the Western world. Because the, the truth is that Christianity looks like it's on the wane in Scotland. And that secularism and uh, humanism and atheism and all the isms, really, they look like they're on, the upper, uh, on their uppers. They're winning. And may even have already won. And so the message of the Orthodox uh, Evangelical Christian Church is on the fringes of things. Uh, culturally speaking, increasingly treated as anathema. And the question might well resound, is Scotland too far gone for God to intervene? Well, Jonah 3 would put us right in our place, I think. Secularism. New atheism. You ought to see those people in Nineveh. They made the isms of our day look like absolute child's play. And God was mighty enough to rescue them. Of course he isn't too weak to intervene in a country like Scotland. Now, that's not to say that he will intervene necessarily. But it is to say that he can. Perhaps our response, though, isn't to dismay because of that bigger cultural picture, but instead because of the people we know, whom we would love to trust in Jesus, but who seem just too far away. Well, God's judgment is always right, And it is always good. And at the same time, Jonah 3, God is abounding in steadfast love. His mercy is more. And that means that no one is too far gone for that offer of forgiveness. And that has very practical implications for for how we speak. We aren't called to do what Jonah did to get to a far-flung part of the world to preach to people. But we are all called as Christians, to tell people about Jesus. Even people who might seem very far away from him. Now, there are a number of people who are part of this church family who have close friends and family whom they would love to come to faith in Jesus, but who seem just impossible to reach. And I know you do, because I've prayed with some of you about those people. Perhaps they've lived morally colorful lives. Lives that are now so complicated that there's no way they could be untangled enough for them to come to faith in Jesus for themselves. Or perhaps have been so opposed to the Christian message, there's no way you think they could ever come to faith in Jesus. Well, again, Jonah would say to that idea, no. Have you seen the Ninevites? Even they weren't beyond hope. And so neither is your friend or your son or your daughter or your mother, or your father, 
or your brother or your sister, then that isn't to say that God will save them necessarily. We entrust all people into his hands. But it is to say that he can. And so what Jonah 3 would have us do, I think, is to carry on speaking. Even when it seems unlikely that someone's ever going to come to faith in Jesus, keep telling them his message. Now, you can't do anything about how they'll they'll respond to that. That is God's job. We leave it to him by his Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. But the point of Jonah 3 is that even when it seems really unlikely, he can still do it. No one is too far gone. That's the first application of Jonah 3, I think. Speak God's message, even when fruit seems unlikely. And there is one final application, I think, and this is what I'll close with today. It's to how we listen. Our response to the message of God's judgment judgment might well be dismay for our culture. Might be dismay for the people we know and love. Might instead be dismay for ourselves. Maybe you're listening this morning thinking that God could never want anything to do with you. Because your life's a catalogue of mistakes and regret. And you feel like you're too far gone. You're a write-off now. You might even come here this morning hoping that someone would tell you, listen, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. God could never be angry with someone like you. Because listen, there are churches you could go to where you would hear just that. But you're not going to hear it here. Because it's not true. The truth is that you might well think you're beyond the pale. And you don't know the half of it. Because God sees not only our actions or the consequences of our actions... He sees the deepest, darkest recesses of our own hearts. Knows how far we've strayed from him. And that means you might well think you're in trouble. But you're in far worse trouble than you even know. And yet. And yet. Your sins. They are many. More than you even know. But his mercy is more. And I know his mercy is more, no matter what you've done, even if you're internally having a bit of an argument with me right now. I know his mercy is more because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The Christian message is not for people who have their act together, because listen, none of us do. It's a message of deserved judgment. But judgment that has been delayed in order that we might turn to him, might trust in him, and that in doing so, we might be rescued. And if you've never done that before, that offer is open to anyone, no matter how far from God you might feel. If any of that does resonate with you this morning, you'd like to chat with someone, please do grab me after the service or speak to someone else, perhaps someone who brought you here this morning. But don't leave if you feel you've got a stone in your shoe about that idea. Don't leave with the stone still in your shoe. Talk with someone about it. Perhaps though you're further down the track than that. And I've been thinking about this message of mercy for some time. Well, let me please encourage you to accept it. To acknowledge your rejection of him in prayer. To ask him for his forgiveness. To call out to him for mercy. Because you see, because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that mercy is available. 
that all can be forgiven and welcomed into his family if he'll take hold of him. You can do that even today. And it's been my hope and prayer this week that someone here might do just that. Let me pray together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the good news of Jesus. That he lived the life that we should have lived, but haven't. That he died the death we should have died, in order that we wouldn't, if we would trust in him. That we would be saved from facing your judgment as we so deserve. And instead might be welcomed into your family, into God's great family. We do thank you and praise you for that wonderful good news this morning. And we ask that you would please impress upon each one of us just how wonderful it really is. Help us to treasure that good news and to treasure you as our rescuer, whether for the very first time or to treasure it afresh. And for those of us who have already treasured it, who have trusted in you for ourselves, would you please help us to tell other people, even people who seem so very far away from you, even people whom we think would reject that message as one that is offensive or one they ought not to listen to, and that we would do so knowing that you are mighty to save. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen.